0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or
1: irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the 404th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Dr. William Meadows, head of the Missouri State Native American Studies Committee, who's going to talk about the code talker's legacy. The history buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Rick Sweet, the show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zappsapital, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker.
0: This is the segment of the show, which we refer to as "Fadrok de Naran, and today we're talking about the Code Talker's legacy with Dr. William Meadows, head of the Missouri State Native American Studies Committee. Welcome to the show, Dr. Meadows. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a pleasure to be here. You have no problem if we call you Bill. That's fine, that's fine, sure, great. Uh, could you give our listeners, Bill, a little background on the military communication issues during and after World War one?
2: Yeah, the situation that the the American forces and as well as the british and french were were having was that Germany knew all these languages really well, so uh, when they when they're sending something in there, if it's based on English and you know that language, it's just a matter of time until you can crack these types of codes in most cases. Um, the other situation is that um, both both germany and and us had listening devices, and so these work on kind of a magnetic uh, signal pull, and you could be anywhere up to about three or four kilometers behind the line. And basically pull a uh, magnetic radio, uh, you know, currency and, and and intercept it, or phone currency and intercept it. Um, and so the issue was how you know how do you send messages that can be secure? Because if the enemy can break them, then they counter everything you're trying to do. So at the time. Um, you basically had three or four main forms. You had uh, phones between two companies, so literally a, a, like a, um, a phone station with a wire you know, going out each side to another company and then wires back to whatever's behind you, your battalion, your regiment, et cetera. Well, anybody who snuck up to these could also clip into these wires, and it just became a party line. You could listen in just, just like us on the phone. Um, they had runners to physically carry written messages, Um, but the minute that um, a man popped up out of a trench and went running, uh, it was a clear sign he was a messenger, and so snipers would open up on them, and about one out of four uh, runners were being either captured or killed. Um, So you can see the the problem here in that there's just no really good way to send messages in a secure fashion that the Germans are not uh, countering.
1: Okay um Bill so I'm not sure because in in modern parlance we think of codes as these highly complex mathematical um sort of constructions um I I assume that's probably not what we're talking about so can you give us some sense of what a code actually would have looked like or sounded like uh at this point
2: Um well uh <laughs> I'm not sure I could sound one, but um, a lot of them are like co- codes and ciphers, so substitution systems. So you might take, for example, um, uh, the alphabet, and you have a, uh, an order handed out for Monday. And at 8 o'clock on Monday, then an A is going to represent the letter F. Uh, A B is going to represent the letter W. Uh, You're just switching uh, assignments around of them. And so you could send messages in written form like that, or even in Morse code or something of that nature if you wanted to. And then the other side... um, your recipient simply took what was received, decoded it using the key that was that was active for that period, and then wrote it out and and handed it on. you know uh, now, with voice, you're pretty much talking just people talking you know regular like we are and everything, and so the idea to use the native languages was that a, this would be a language that they would not be aware of, they would have no former. Um, experience with, no materials or samples to really compare. You know, it would be an unknown entity.
0: Okay. Um, Two parts. Number one, To show the age of this crowd, Um, you -hmm. brought up the term "party line," and I don't think our younger listeners have a clue what a party (laughs) line is. If you could clarify, because we used to—I grew up on a farm and we had a party line. So I mean, yeah, if
2: you're
0: you're older than forty-five, you don't have a clue what the hell that is. Younger than
3: forty-five. Well,
0: younger than forty-five. Excuse Um, me, younger. But yeah, it it was actually a line shared by many phones. Uh, Who is the brain? Who is the brainchild to come up with? Uh, the idea in the military about going turning to Native Americans uh, and their languages and using it for communication. The
2: the best I can tell, and again, I always preface this with with this preface. Um, until all the military documents are scanned and we can digitally search them, it's still like you know hunting needles in haystacks and everything. Um, the best the best information we have at present, though, is that numerous individuals had similar ideas in different units there doesn't there's no evidence that there was a center uh plan or anything there was clearly nothing before we entered the war and that these were situations that come up to solve problems as they arose in the field and some of the we know of at least 3 cases documented pretty well um, where you know they're all having the same problem of the interceptions, the lack of security, and they're saying how can we you know how can we counter this? And somebody brings to their point, well, we have a lot of Native Americans in our group, and they speak their language. They also speak English. We could put them on there, you know. And so there seems to be, it's what we'd call independent invention, you know, in anthropology, Um, independent ideas of solving a similar problem with a similar method, just using different languages of whoever was available.
1: Okay, so how much input, if any, did Native American soldiers have in the development of this process? And I'm thinking here, particularly over time. Um, so as we year. get yeah, so as we get past World War One and we're starting to, to to think about these sorts of things, obviously the the problem is is there and and everybody's aware mm-hmm. of it. Um, how much are they contributing, or are they really just being tapped, as you said, because they're available and it just happens to work?
2: Uh, at first they 're just tapped, like with the Choctaws. There was an order that came down from the regimental headquarters and uh, <clears throat> asked one of the officers in, in, in Company E of the one hundred and forty second which was which was completely native at one time, and then even through most of the war, it was well over you know sixty percent native throughout the war. Um, you know I, I need eight people who can you know who can speak their language, but also good in English now, towards the end of the war now again, this is for some groups we just don 't have very much documentation so we 're prefacing on only by what we have to work with at present. Um, the Choctaws they used their language just 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 regular vernacular language talking with one another over the phone in a uh, in a two day fight in a place called Force Farm uh, immediately after that, it was recognized that some of the modern technology that the u s army had and military there was not. Terms for it in that existing language at that time. So they actually pulled them back and and formed kind of like a week of a training unit. There was they so used eight men in the first conflict. They got eighteen. Enlisted men and three non-commissioned officers and did five days of training. And during this, they actually made up a list of code words. And so this is where the natives take more of a a really integral part. Um, They are saying, okay, this is a, you know, this is a tank. um, This is artillery. You know, this is going to be the term for a regiment. Um, a battalion, a squad, so forth and so on. So they actually create the terms. And uh, now with the Choctaw case, they had a list of terms. It wasn't wasn't huge, uh, say around 15 to 20, but they had a list of terms ready. And then the very next day they finished their training, the armistice was signed. So they never (laughs) got to go back in and use those. But what they did was that those documents got preserved. And uh, they set a precedent that was, that was not forgotten and that expanded in World War II. So um, starting in the winter of 1940, so December of 40, January of 41, the Army went out and recruited – so this is almost a year before Pearl Harbor uh, – they recruited uh, four different groups. Uh, no, I'm sorry, three initially, um, different groups that they got small groups of men and had them specifically went through basic, went through communication school, and then that was their task was to form a code in their own language. And so the Comanches, which was the first group I worked with in World War II, um, they ended up developing around 250 coded words that then would be put in into uh, the Comanche language. And so the coded words, only they knew what they meant. Um, so people back home, they, they might not even realize, they might be able to literally translate the meaning of the word, but not the context or what it stood for. Sure. And uh, you were talking about simplicity of codes. And, you know, a code, the more complex it is, the harder it is to break. But you and I could sit down and make a very quick code in five minutes that we could, we could get some basic things across and no one else would have a clue, you know.
1: Sure. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University 106.1 FM. 88.5 FM website keeps
3: you up to date with everything KALA, including a complete program schedule for 88.5 and 106.1 FM. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back
0: to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what
1: is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. William Meadows, head of the Missouri State Native American Society's Committee, Studies Committee, excuse me. And we're talking about the Code Talker's legacy. Our history buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. Ed, why don't you start us off?
4: Thanks, Jay. Dr. Meadows, you mentioned that uh, you had worked with uh, some Code Talkers. Uh, How long have you been at this? Uh, How many of them? Uh, Which tribes? Uh, Can you fill us in on that? Uh, Sure. Um, Let me
2: think a minute. I would say very... Very like 1989 would have been the first thing that I saw. <clears throat> uh, it was an awards awards presentation that was done for the Comanche and the Choctaw in Oklahoma, and um, that caught my radar. It would be a couple, maybe a couple years later, when I really started doing it. And um, I was doing my my dissertation on um, what what's called so- Southern Plains Indian uh, warrior societies or military societies. So they're like fraternal warrior groups that these tribes had and they're they're pre um, pre-anglo contact they go way back and everything um, so i was doing interviews because this one comanche gentleman Force cast he was a headsman in one of these dance ceremonial groups that's still around today and we we just simply got off the subject and then you know he came to tell me that he was in world war ii and i said what did you do and And uh, he told me about, you know, getting recruited well before uh, Pearl Harbor. And so uh, there were still, let me think, I think there were still four, yeah, there were four of the Comanches still alive at that time. Uh, There was a couple others that had been interviewed and tape recorded before they passed. Uh, Lots of family members. And then um, their commanding officer, their training officer, um, who was a lieutenant back then, but retired as a as a major general, uh, he was still alive and able to provide very meticulous details about how they formed the code and and did things of that nature and so i, I initially did a, a project mostly my the project was on the Comanches um, and a little bit on the Choctaws because that that was the best known group in World War one at that time and it really just kind of uh, i didn't really necessarily have a plan that I was going to go on and do other things with code talking. Um, you know, everybody knew about the Navajo, uh, but I had done this Comanche project, <clears throat> and then just a couple of years after the book came out, I got a call from uh, Senator Tom Daschle's office, and they asked me to come up and, and would I present all the information I have on all Native code talkers um, at a Senate um, Senate committee hearing you know so I went up and presented that information and, and uh, with the leaders from several other tribes and um, that's, that's part of what fed in and led to uh, um, the legislation that brought in the Native American Code Talker Act um, and then it just never really stopped from there and so I, I've been at it uh, kind of you know I hate to say fits and starts but there's periods where you get real busy for a while and then the trail goes cold and then you get some new clues or some other things, and it picks up again. Uh, but I'm still working on it today. So it's been, um, you know, we're looking at 30 years or so, and um, I'm still working on it. I'm working on the World War II volume and uh, trying to finish up some of the groups in it.
0: That sounds like a typical... Uh, but,
2: you know, t- since that time, I interviewed several of the last Navajos. Um, the last Pawnee guy I interviewed, the last Assiniboine guy I interviewed, and... Um, and then others that had already went on, I was able to track down sometimes an archival interview and get a hold of that,
0: you know. Okay. Sounds like a typical dissertation. Uh, Rick, your question. Yeah. Uh,
4: yes, Bill. I was uh, <clears throat> read the article, uh, uh, and uh, uh, I've read books on this as well, and just incredibly fascinating. Uh, knowing that the Germans were ingenious people, still are. Uh, mm-hmm. There certainly must have been some effort when they uh, knew that there was some strange language coming out of particularly uh, America. I don't think there's a lot of uh, native speakers in England or or France, but uh, any evidence that the Germans tried to crack the code to uh, f- find a native uh, uh, talker, a native Indian who could talk, um, Choctaw or uh, uh, Comanche or Navajo to break the code
2: um, in World War one there simply wasn't time um, because it, they started using these very late the, I think they there's only three groups that I can pinpoint starting dates. There's four other groups, but we we know it's either this campaign or this campaign, but we just don't have any. Uh, actual documentation of the first time it was used. Sure, um, <clears throat> but most of it was used in the in the last you know couple months of the war. So there was really no time, uh, and all the fighting was in France, of course, at that time. But no time to make those kind of uh, adjustments or preparations. Now there there is some literature and some mentions that between World War One and Two, um, you'll see these these brief references to German anthropologists coming over to study. Uh, Native American groups, and there's some allegations that say that um, they, they were here to learn languages and, and see, you know, see what they could learn. Um, I've I've not really found like concrete material on that one way or the other, you know, kind of thing. Now, of course, there were some German anthropologists. There's no question about that, uh, and everything. But I, I haven't really been able to comfortably, you know, confirm that, you know. Um, I don't think it's it's impossible by any means, you know, because there were German officers that got captured in World War One, and they asked specifically um, the Americans that captured them what was that language you were using on the phones? You know, we've never heard anything like it. And one of them said, you know, we we understand almost all the world's major languages. You know, we have somebody that can do those, uh, but we've never heard anything like this. You know, and of course they didn't tell them. Um, <laughs> well, now good in, call. in World War Two. <laughs> um... we do know that by the end of the war um japan had identified that it was the navajo code that was being used against them in the pacific um, they had recorded copies of it uh... they had and, and i have my suspicions on how they how they figured that out Um there was there were some japanese captured when baton fell in in april forty two uh... quite a few oklahoma or i'm sorry quite a few new mexico arizona natives in uh, the uh, New Mexico Coast Guard unit, and were captured there and went through Bataan and some of that. Well, there was a guy named Joe Kiyomi, and <clears throat> when they first um, captured him, they thought he was Japanese-American based on his, his looks but also the pronunciation of his name. Uh, it sounds very similar to a to a Japanese word. And so he got some, some really harsh treatment, and he told them, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Japanese. They thought he was a traitor, Japanese-American. <laughs> I'm not a Japanese. I'm an American Indian. I'm a Navajo. You know, leave me alone. <clears throat> so they left him alone for a while. Well, later in the war, they came and got him and made him listen to recordings of the Code Talkers. Now, he was captured before the very first Code Talker platoon was even recruited, um, when they actually went out and physically began to recruit guys, so he had no knowledge about the code talkers or anything about it. Um, he listened to the tapes he could not break them and uh he said you know it's it's um some of it I can understand, but it doesn't make sense to me you know and so they thought he was withholding, and so he was um, tortured pretty severely after that, and and did quite a bit of damage. But he survived the war. But he was a very fluent speaker of it. But he wasn't trained in the code, so he couldn't sure, break it. Sure, You know. Right.
0: Um,
2: but yeah, they had identified that one by the end of the war. So,
0: a question then. So you have, of course, uh, this idea coming up in World War One. Um, what did um, the English and the French? think about this? Did they instantly jump at it and said, yeah, we've got something here? Or were they skeptical? Is there any really record of what their opinion was in the beginning?
2: Uh, Not much while it was being used. And of course, it was just being used in the American units. And it's fairly small unit, small unit actions, too. It's mostly like uh, regiments, you know, and things like that and companies. Um, Now, after the war, there are some comments by uh, the French uh, military leaders really applauding Native Americans and their participation in their efforts and everything. Um, and I think there are a couple that do mention they they knew that they used their language um, to help them. Um, I have not come across anything in French or British. You know, it, it's it's possible that there were some comments recorded, but I haven't come across very much on that line. But they were they they did know about it at least at the war's end. Okay.
1: Um, Bill, this is Jay again. I'm just curious, so you've, we've talked or hinted around a little bit that that uh, as we get into World War II, um, we're, we're going to start at the military, U.S. military is going to start actively recruiting and training um, mm-hmm. Code talking units. Can you talk about that process of recruitment and and training, and and how many people were ultimately involved and distributed throughout the the military?
2: Okay, um, so like with the Comanches, they sent an army officer down to the uh, the. It was called the CCCID, so it's Civilian Conservation Corps, but it's the Indian Division. And these these worked a lot in the states that had, you know, higher native populations working on the reservations and and everything, state parks and public lands and all that. Um, He came down there with a specific um, task, like with the Comanches, uh, he was going – at one time they said they were going to recruit 30 uh, and they ended up being closer closer to 20, and then it was culled down to 17. Um, but they were looking for um, you know, m- men that were fully bilingual, you know, fully fluent in English, but very good speakers of their own language, unmarried, no dependents. And uh, some of the gentlemen that I interviewed said, you know, they didn't tell them exactly what they were recruiting for, but they had – when they said those things, they had a, a pretty good clue. It's going to be do something about communicating, you know. Um, and so a lot of them were – were some of them were home from, from Christmas out of uh, boarding schools. Uh, some of them had just graduated, were 18 or 19. And so a lot of them ended up joining, um, you know, some of them said that, well, you know, we knew we knew we're going to get into this thing sooner or later. And um, uh, one guy, for example, told me he joined because 11 other 11 of the 16 other guys were some kind of relative to him, a cousin, (laughs) uh, an uncle, you know, some situation. So he said he joked and he said, you know. I asked myself, do I want to go through the war with a bunch of guys that, you know, we all grew up together, same culture, background, language, or do I want to get stuck with a bunch of guys from New Jersey or something, you know? And what's funny is later they end up being stationed at Fort Dix, and so they become (laughs) friends with these New Jersey guys, you know? Wow. (laughs) Right. um, But some of them, it was was like there was was cousins that joined. There was a guy, one that was an uh, uncle and a nephew that joined, you know? Um, So – uh there were there were groups like that 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 really were were kind of culled out very early now one of the interesting things that happened is <clears throat> later in the war and these are small groups 17 Comanches 8 Musquawkee's um there were i think 17 between the Chippewa and the Oneida two different tribes from Michigan and Wisconsin um, later there would be eight hopies that were pulled together they were already in service but were pulled together and made into a language uh, group um so the groups are pretty small and then about 43 44 there is some discussion so this is before um you know D day in in uh, Europe uh there's discussion between representatives of the army um the navy and the marines and um it's about the feasibility of expanding Indian radio, you know, code talkers, or they weren't using the term code talker yet, but Indian communicators, Indian radio men, etc. And I got a hold of those papers, and uh, to be quite honestly, they're they're just very, very skeptical at the time. They know they've got these small groups, and they're trained, but one of the big concerns is, well, we can't monitor the messages because none of us speak those languages. So we're just basically trusting others that they're going to do this well and 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 do it successfully and everything and you know there's there's skepticism there's a hint of you know today it would be you know, blatantly called racism but people are are just very doubtful about it because they're natives um, and so the navy decides uh, it's tested a few people it decides to forego it says we really don't need them for our needs we're going to forego them the army decided to keep the units that they had which are fairly small uh, but not expand the program. The Marines kind of kept quiet on it during, during these meetings. And then, of course, what, what they had was they had their own program going on with the Navajo, and they were making great, great efforts to keep that under taps as much as possible. Now, so, so uh, what I'm getting at is there was, there was decisions in the military to not expand it, which I think was a great mistake because there's roughly 420 Navajo that were used in the Marine Corps. Um, estimates are about 285 of them saw combat. Some, some were trained and on their way. Some of them were still like in Hawaii. Some were still in school training when the war ended. So there was like every stage of progression. Um, the Army probably had around 260 some uh, total uh, soldiers. So when you put this together, it's under 700 You know, uh, total that were used. Out of a population that was potentially as high as as forty four thousand males, um, now not everybody still spoke their native language, but a vast majority of them did at that time. You know, um, so I I've always described in my in my literature that they. Uh, They kind of nipped it in the bud, really, prematurely. They could have really, really expanded this, you know, uh, this uh, type of use of them and everything. But for various reasons, were we're skeptical and and didn't do it, you know. Um, Now, another problem or another situation is that there's a lot of of local officers, particularly in the Army groups, and they just on their own volition – uh, decided it wasn't a sanctioned program. They just said, hey, we got three guys, we got five guys, we got seven guys that can speak this language. We're going to use them on the radios. And so I also met people that and interviewed people that were in that kind of category. And so they were kind of, uh, you know, de facto. They didn't have formal training. Uh, they were just using them to talk in their everyday languages, you know.
1: Okay, well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
3: You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes the 404th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeling,
1: And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. William Meadows, head of the Missouri State Native American Studies Committee, who talked to us about the Code Talker's legacy. The history buffs for today's show were Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA.
0: We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.